Section 21, Autobiography of John Stuart Mill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Chapter 7, Part 6. View of the Remainder of My Life. As a matter of curiosity, I kept some specimens of the abusive letters, almost all of them anonymous, which I received while these proceedings were going on. They are evidence of the sympathy felt with the brutalities in Jamaica by the brutal part of the population at home. They graduated from coarse jokes, verbal and pictorial, up to threats of assassination. Among other matters of importance in which I took an active part, but which excited little interest in the public, to deserve particular mention, I joined with several other independent liberals in defeating an extradition bill introduced at the very end of the session of 1866, and by which, though surrender avowedly for political offenses was not authorized, Political refugees, if charged by a foreign government with acts which are necessarily incident to all attempts at insurrection, would have been surrendered to be dealt with by the criminal courts of the government against which they had rebelled, thus making the British government an accomplice in the vengeance of foreign despotisms. The defeat of this proposal led to the appointment of a select committee in which I was included, to examine and report on the whole subject of extradition treaties. And the result was that in the Extradition Act, which passed through Parliament after I had ceased to be a member, opportunity is given to anyone whose extradition is demanded of being heard before an English court of justice to prove that the offense with which he is charged is readily political. The cause of European freedom has thus been saved from a serious misfortune, and our own country from a great iniquity. The other subject to be mentioned is the fight kept up by a body of advanced liberals in the session of 1868, on the bribery bill of Mr. Disraeli's government, in which I took a very active part. I had taken counsel with several of those who had applied their minds most carefully to the details of the subject. Mr. W. D. Christie, Sergeant Pulling, Mr. Chadwick, as well as bestowed much thought of my own for the purpose of framing such amendments and additional clauses as might make the bill really effective against the numerous modes of corruption, direct and indirect which might otherwise, as there was much reasoning to fear, be increased instead of diminished by the Reform Act. We also aimed at engrafting on the bill measures for diminishing the mischievous burden of what are called the legitimate expenses of elections. Among our many amendments was that of Mr. Fawcett, for making the returning officers' expenses a charge on the rates instead of on the candidates. 
Another was the prohibition of paid canvassers and the limitation of paid agents to one for each candidate. A third was the extension of the precautions and penalties against bribery to municipal elections, which are well known to be not only a preparatory school for bribery at parliamentary elections, but an habitual cover for it. The conservative government, however, when once they had carried the leading provision of their bill, for which I voted and spoke, the transfer of the jurisdiction in elections from the House of Commons to the judges made a determined resistance to all other improvements. And after one of our most important proposals, that of Mr. Fawcett, had actually obtained a majority, they summoned the strength of their party and threw out the clause in a subsequent stage. The Liberal Party in the House was greatly dishonored by the conduct of many of its members in giving no help whatever to this attempt to secure the necessary conditions for an honest representation of the people. With their large majority in the House, they could have carried all the amendments, or better ones if they had better to propose. But it was late in the session. Members were eager to set about their preparations for the impending general election, and while some, such as Sir Robert Anstruther, honorably remained at their post, though rival candidates were already canvassing their constituency, a much greater number placed their electioneering interests before their public duty. Many liberals are looked with indifference on legislation against bribery, thinking that it merely diverted public interest from the ballot, which they considered, very mistakenly, as I expect it will turn out, to be a sufficient and the only remedy. From these causes our fight, though kept up with great vigor for several nights, was wholly unsuccessful and the practices which we sought to render more difficult prevailed more widely than ever in the first general election held under the new electoral law. In the general debates on Mr. Disraeli's reform bill, my participation was limited to the one speech already mentioned, but I made the bill an occasion for bringing the two great improvements which remained to be made in representative government, formerly before the House and the nation. One of them was personal, or, as it is called with equal propriety, proportional representation. I brought this under the consideration of the House by an expository and argumentative speech on Mr. Hare's plan, and subsequently I was active in support of the very imperfect substitute for that plan, which, in a small number of constituencies, Parliament was induced to adopt. This poor makeshift had scarcely any recommendation, except that it was a partial recognition of the evil which it did so little to remedy. As such, however, it was attacked by the same fallacies and required to be defended on the same principles 
as a really good measure, and its adoption in a few parliamentary elections, as well as the subsequent introduction of what is called the cumulative vote in the elections for the London School Board, have had the good effect of converting the equal claim of all electors to a proportional share in the representation from a subject of merely speculative discussion into a question of practical politics much sooner than would otherwise have been the case this assertion of my opinions on personal representation cannot be credited with any considerable or visible amount of practical result it was otherwise with the other motion which i made in the form of an amendment to the reform bill and which was by far the most important perhaps the only really important public service i performed in the capacity of a member of parliament a motion to strike out the words which were understood to limit the electoral franchise to males and thereby to admit to the suffrage all women who as householders or otherwise possessed the qualification required of male electors for women not to make their claim to the suffrage at the time when the elective franchise was being largely extended would have been to abjure the claim altogether and a movement on the subject was begun in 1866 when i presented a petition for the suffrage signed by a considerable number of distinguished women but it was as yet uncertain whether the proposal would obtain more than a few stray votes in the house and when after a debate in which the speakers on the contrary side were conspicuous by their feebleness the votes recorded in favor of the motion amounted to seventy-three made up by pairs and tellers to above eighty the surprise was general and the encouragement great the greater too because one of those who voted for the motion was mr bright a fact which could only be attributed to the impressions made on him by the debate as he had previously made no secret of his non-concurrence in the proposal the time appeared to my daughter miss helen taylor to have come for forming a society for the extension of the suffrage of women the existence of the society is due to my daughter's initiative its constitution was planned entirely by her and she was the soul of the movement during the first years though delicate health and superabundant occupation made her decline to be a member of the executive committee many distinguished members of parliament professors and others and some of the most eminent women of whom the country can boast became members of the society a large proportion either directly or indirectly through my daughter's influence she having written the greater number and all the best of the letters by which adhesions was obtained even when those letters bore my signature in two remarkable instances those of miss nightingale and miss mary carpenter 
the reluctance of those ladies had at first felt to come forward for it was not on their past difference of opinion was overcome by appeals written by my daughter though signed by me associations for the same object were formed in various local centres manchester edinburgh birmingham bristol and glasgow and others which have done much valuable work for the cause all the societies take the title of branches of the national society for women's suffrage but each has its own governing body and acts in complete independence of the others i believe i have mentioned all that is worth remembering of my proceedings in the house but their enumeration even if complete would give but an inadequate idea of my occupations during that period and especially of my time taken up by correspondence for many years before my election to parliament i had been continually receiving letters from strangers mostly addressed to me as a writer on philosophy and either propounding difficulties or communicating thoughts on subjects connected with logic or political economy in common i suppose with all who are known as political economists i was a recipient of all the shallow theories and absurd proposals by which people are perpetually endeavoring to show the way to universal wealth and happiness by some artful reorganization of the currency when there were signs of sufficient intelligence in the writers to make it worth while attempting to put them right i took the trouble to point out their errors until the growth of my correspondence made it necessary to dismiss such persons with very brief answers many however of the communications i received were more worthy of attention than these and in some oversights of detail were pointed out in my writings which i was thus enabled to correct correspondence of this sort naturally multiplied with the multiplication of the subjects on which i wrote especially those of a metaphysical character but when i became a member of parliament i began to receive letters on private grievances on every imaginable subject that related to any kind of public affairs however remote from my knowledge or pursuits it was not my constituents in westminster who laid this burden on me they kept with remarkable fidelity to the understanding on which i had consented to serve i received indeed now and then an application from some ingenuous youth to procure for him a small governmental appointment but these were few and how simple and ignorant the writers were was shown by the fact that the applications came in about equally whichever party was in power my invariable answer was that it was contrary to the principles on which i was elected to ask favors of any government but on the whole hardly any part of the country gave me less trouble than my own constituents the general mass of correspondence however swelled into an oppressive burthen at the time and thenceforth 
a great proportion of all my letters including many which found their way into the newspapers were not written by me but by my daughter at first merely from her willingness to help in disposing of a mass of letters greater than i could get through without assistance but afterwards because i thought the letters she wrote superior to mine and more so in proportion to the difficulty and importance of the occasion even those which i wrote myself were generally much improved by her as is also the case with all the more recent of my prepared speeches of which and of some of my published writings not a few passages and those the most successful were hers while i remained in parliament my work as an author was unavoidably limited to the recess during that time i wrote besides the pamphlet on ireland already mentioned the essay on plato published in the edinburgh review and reprinted in the third volume of dissertations and discussions and the address which conformably to custom i delivered to the university of st andrews whose students had done me the honor of electing me to the office of rector in this discourse i gave expression to many thoughts and opinions which had been accumulating in me through life respecting the various studies which belong to a liberal education their uses and influences and the mode in which they should be pursued to render their influences most beneficial the position taken up vindicating the high educational value alike of the old classic and new scientific studies on even stronger grounds than are urged by most of their advocates and insisting that it is only the stupid inefficiency of the usual teaching which makes those studies be regarded as competitors instead of allies was i think calculated not only to aid and stimulate the improvement which was happily commenced in the national institutions for higher education but to diffuse juster ideas than we often find even in highly educated men on the conditions of the highest mental cultivation during this period also i commenced and completed soon after i had left parliament the performance of a duty to philosophy and to the memory of my father by preparing and publishing an edition of the analysis of the phenomena of the human mind with notes bringing up the doctrines of that admirable book to the latest improvements in science and in speculation this was a joint undertaking the psychological notes being furnished in about equal proportions by mr bain and myself while mr grote supplied some valuable contributions on points in the history of philosophy incidentally raised and dr andrew findlater supplied the deficiencies in the book which had been occasioned by the imperfect philological knowledge of the time when it was written having been originally published at a time when the current of metaphysical speculation ran in a quite opposite direction to the psychology of experience and association the analysis had not obtained 
the amount of immediate success which it deserved though it had been made a deep impression on many individual minds and had largely contributed through those minds to create that more favorable atmosphere for an association psychology of which we now have the benefit admirably adapted for a class book of the experience of metaphysics it only required to be enriched and in some cases corrected by the results of more recent labors in the same school of thought to stand as it now does in company with mr bain's treatises at the head of the systematic works on analytic psychology in the autumn of eighteen sixty eight the parliament which passed the reform act was dissolved and at the new election of for westminster i was thrown out not to my surprise nor i believe to that of my principal supporters though in the few days preceding the election they had become more sanguine than before that i should not have been elected at all would not have required any explanation what excites curiosity is that i should have been elected the first time or having been elected then should have been defeated afterwards but the efforts made to defeat me were far greater on the second occasion than on the first for one thing the tory government was now struggling for existence and success in any contest was of more importance to them then too all persons of tory feelings were far more embittered against me individually than on the previous occasion many who had at first been either favorable or indifferent were vehemently opposed to my re-election as i had shown in my political writings that i was aware of the weak points in democratic opinions some conservatives it seems had not been without hopes of finding me an opponent of democracy as i was able to see the conservative side of the question they presumed that like them i could not see any other side yet if they had really read my writings they would have known that after giving full weight to all that appeared to me well grounded in the arguments against democracy i unhesitatingly decided in its favor while recommending that it should be accompanied by such institutions as were consistent with its principle and calculated to ward off its inconveniences one of the chief of these remedies being proportional representation on which scarcely any of the conservatives gave me any support some tory expectations appeared to have been founded on the approbation i had expressed of plural voting under certain conditions and it has been surmised that the suggestion of this sort made in one of the resolutions which mr disraeli introduced into the house preparatory to his reform bill a suggestion which meeting with no favor he did not press may have been occasioned by what i had written on the point but if so 
it was forgotten that i had made it an express condition that the privilege of that plurality of votes should be annexed to education not to property and even so had approved of it only on the supposition of universal suffrage how utterly inadmissible such plural voting would be under the suffrage given by the present reform act is proved to any who could otherwise doubt it by the very small weight which the working classes are found to possess in elections even under the law which gives no more votes to any one elector than to any other while i thus was far more obnoxious to the tory interests and to many conservative liberals than i had formerly been the course i pursued in parliament had by no means been such as to make liberals generally at all enthusiastic in my support it has already been mentioned how large a proportion of my prominent appearances had been on questions on which i had differed from most of the liberal party or about which they cared little and how few occasions there had been on which the line i took was such as could lead them to attach any great value to me as an organ of their opinions i had moreover done things which had excited in many minds a personal prejudice against me many were offended by what they called the persecution of mr airy and still greater offence was taken at my sending a subscription to the election expenses of mr bradlaugh having refused to be at any expense for my own election and having had all its expenses defrayed by others i felt under a peculiar obligation to subscribe in my turn where funds were deficient for candidates whose election was desirable i accordingly sent subscriptions to nearly all the working-class candidates and among others to mr bradlaugh he had the support of the working classes having heard him speak i knew him to be a man of ability and he had proved that he was the reverse of a demagogue by placing himself in strong opposition to the prevailing opinion of the democratic party on two such important subjects as malthusianism and personal representation men of this sort who while sharing the democratic feelings of the working classes judged political questions for themselves and had courage to assert their individual convictions against popular opposition were needed as it seemed to me in parliament and i did not think that mr bradlaugh's anti-religious opinions even though he had been intemperate in the expression of them ought to exclude him in subscribing however to his election i did what would have been highly imprudent if i had been at liberty to consider only the interest of my own re-election and as might be expected the utmost possible use both fair and unfair was made of this act of mine to stir up the electors of westminster against me to these various causes 
combined with an unscrupulous use of the usual pecuniary and other influences on the side of my Tory competitor, while none were used on my side, it is to be ascribed that I failed at my second election after having succeeded at the first. No sooner was the result of the election known than I received three or four invitations to become a candidate for other constituencies, chiefly counties. But even if success could have been expected, and this without expense, I was not disposed to deny myself the relief of returning to private life. I had no cause to feel humiliated at my rejection by the electors, and if I had, the feeling would have been far outweighed by the numerous expressions of regret, which I received from all sorts of persons and places, and in a most marked degree from those members of the Liberal Party in Parliament with whom I had been accustomed to act. Since that time, little has occurred which there is need to commemorate in this place. I returned to my old pursuits and to the enjoyment of a country life in the south of Europe, alternating twice a year with the residence of some weeks or months in the neighborhood of London. I have written various articles in periodicals, chiefly in my friend Mr. Mosley's fortnightly review, have made a small number of speeches on public occasions, especially at the meetings of the Women's Suffrage Society, have published The Subjection of Women, written some years before with some additions by my daughter and myself, and have commenced the preparation of matter for future books, of which it will be time to speak more particularly if I live to finish them. Here, therefore, for the present, this memoir may close. End of section 21, recording by Tony Richardson. This is the end of the autobiography of John Stuart Mill.